2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 16 through 21. I'm going to open this morning by reading our scripture, because like I said this morning uh, when I was doing the catechism, this is the part that really matters. Anything that I say is, is vastly subservient to the word itself. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 21, this is Paul talking. He says, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you to bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. That's the word of the Lord. Did, uh, did the iPad die, Gus? Yeah. My condolences. The iPad died. Okay, we're, we're starting a, a, a new sermon series today called Humble Brag. And um, it's Humble Brag, Redeeming Boasting in the Christian Life. This series is going to be a three-part series, and it's spanning 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen, all the way to chapter 12, verse 10. And the general message of this series is how Paul has mastered the, the ability of, to truly humble brag, but he correctly values himself this week. Next week, we'll see that he correctly interprets the suffering that he's endured because of the cross, and he correctly esteems his weaknesses, we'll see in the third week. And doing these things, when he proclaims them to the Corinthian church, he's mastered humble bragging in a theologically correct manner. Um, so, is anybody here familiar with the term humble bragging? Humble brag? Humble brag. I know it sounds like a hobbit last name, right? Mariadoc humble brag and Peregrine Took. I might have known, right? It, it's not a hobbit's last name, or at least I think it's not a hobbit's last name, but who am I to judge? I'm not sure. Um, no, it, humble bragging is when somebody uh, s- kind of self-deprecates, but in reality, it's just like a thinly veiled boast. And it's nothing new, but it's become a little bit more common in social media. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, when somebody posts something that says like, oh, man, it's so ridiculous. I've had the hardest day today. I went out and I was wearing sweats and I barely even shaved my face and there's things in my teeth and still there's all sorts of girls asking me for my number. What a hard day. Hashtag tough life. Some, something like that. Or I got on the wrong plane in LAX because all the cameras were flashing at me and I got disoriented. Hashtag don't judge. Something like that. You see, it's like, it's thinly veiled. Or, you know, my, my favorite example is... Um, uh, I got a quote from Michael Scott from The Office. He says, when I retire... <laughs> Sorry. When, when I retire, I don't want to just disappear on an island somewhere. I want to be the guy who gives everything back. I want to be like, hey, who donated that hospital wing that is saving so many lives? Um, well, I don't know. It was anonymous. Well, guess what? That was Michael Scott. <laughs> but it was anonymous. How do you know? because I 
and Michael Scott. It's the, so, you, so you get it. It's, it's humble bragging. It's like you're, you're thinly veiling the fact that you have something to boast about. And Paul does brag in humility, but he actually does it in such a way where it's legitimately genuine. When he talks about harsh things of his life, he's bragging about them, not to thinly veil some secret confidence, but because he understands that his persecution and the fact that he's destitute is actually the substance of his salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, This week, the title of the sermon is False Bragging. And the kind of parentheses of that is uh, bragging in yourself. False bragging is bragging in yourself. We're gonna look, we read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 16 through 21, and Paul, Paul dissembles this paradigm of self-boasting. He says it doesn't work. By the end of the sermon, we'll come to determine that bragging in ourselves is ungrounded, and it's a foolish thing to do. So self-bragging is false bragging. But what does boasting mean? The word in Greek that is often translated boasting appears nine times over the course of this section from 11.16 to 12.10. So it's a primary topic in these passages. So we really need to know what it means in order to understand this core principle. Um, The word that's translated boasting, I should first say that it's not always translated boasting. And sometimes it's not even translated into a negative word. Sometimes it's translated into glorying, like glorying in God or exalting, exalting God's name. The word that's translated boasting is from the same root word of the word we get for prayer. And it's got this imagery of height, of loftiness, whereas prayer refers to loftiness because it's petitioning somebody who's in high esteem. Boasting refers to loftiness because it's placing someone in high esteem. It's pitching someone upward. It's lofting someone upward. It's got this imagery of height, of loftiness. Now, although, um, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So Paul is going to perform his own rendition of, of a boast in the coming passages, but first he wants to declare that self-boasting is something foolish and something that only fools do. Uh, his demeanor in today's passage is one that says, okay, you're asking me to brag. I don't want to do it. You're asking for it. I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. And the entire passage that we read today is really just him saying, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. And we don't get his actual presentation until what we read next week. And what we can gather from that priority is that Paul really wants us to understand that there is something intrinsically wrong in anybody boasting in themselves, but but particularly an apparent servant of God, lauding his own credentials, boasting, pitching himself high, placing himself in a lofty esteem. Paul wants us really to grasp that is wholly inappropriate within the context of the gospel. Um, Verses 16 through 18. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read those again. I say it again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least, receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly. In this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also 
will boast. Paul uses their indictment on him. He's been defending himself since, chap- since the beginning of chapter 11, saying that he's not a fool, despite the fact that they continue to uh, hear these words of people who are down, uh, downgrading Paul, saying he's ridiculous, he's a poor speaker, he's unimpressive, he's offended you by not willing to accept your salary that you want to offer him, he's a foolish guy. Paul is saying, look, I'm not a fool. And then he flips that on its head. He says, yet, if you're going to see me as a fool, at least let me do what those guys do, because those ones are the fools, and this is what they do. They boast. Paul's flipping their indictment back on them, and he's, it's like, I'm going to use another Hobbit reference. I, I didn't want to, but this is Calvary the Hill. I guess that's par for the course. Um, in, in The Hobbit, Gandalf, like, racketeers, uh, Bilbo into this group of dwarves, and he labels his role as the burglar. And he, as far as we can, we can recognize, Bilbo is not a thief. He's just kind of like this high-class guy. In fact, in the movie version of it, they actually add in this line to get this across where he's offended. He resents that. He's like, I've never stolen anything in my life. But over time through the book, he steals a lot of stuff. <laughs> he, uh, he, when the band is, is kind of Surrounded by a bunch of trolls, he goes into William's pocket, William the troll, and he steals his purse. And um, he, he just recognizes that pickpocketing is something that apparently burglars do, so I'll, I'll give that a shot. Or even when he finds the ring itself, he steals it. He sees it, and he grabs it for himself. Um, and the, kind of the, the fruition of that, of that label that Gandalf has given him is when he's in, uh, he finds the Arkenstone this thing that all the dwarves are looking for. And he, without thinking, just by muscle memory and, and just uh, kind of by his new nature, he reaches for it and puts it in his pocket, and he says to himself, now I am a burglar indeed. So he's like, he initially resented this title, he refused this title, and now he's kind of reaping the fringe benefits. Well, as long as they call me a burglar, I might as well start getting some good stuff. Paul is saying, well, as long as they're calling me a fool... Let me start doing what the fools do. Let me play something out of their arsenal. As long as I have to bear the title that I don't like, it, I should at least reap the fringe benefits and be allowed to boast in myself. It's really interesting that in, um, in verse 17, there's this tiny little interjection. He says, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but it as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. It's just this little thing that he adds in there. What he wants people to understand, he's like, I'm going to do this, but it's not the way Jesus does things. He says, I will boast. You're telling me that you want to hear my credentials. As long as you call me a fool, I'll foolishly boast. As long as you call me a burglar, I'm going to pickpocket the troll, right? But he says, I want you to understand first that this is not the way Jesus does things. These are not the words of the Lord. We'll get back to that a little bit later. I just want to follow this track. Paul assumes this position that boasting in yourself is a foolish thing to do. He doesn't give us any reasons here. Do you notice that it's just something that he, that he says is um, a part of boasting. It's something that the fools do. Boasting is foolish. So what I wanted to do when I was studying for this passage is trying to look through Scripture as to why boasting may apparently be foolish. And I think one of the most obvious answers 
is because if you follow a boast, you know, something that somebody is really like lauding up for themselves, if you follow it long enough, eventually it becomes untrue. Maybe by the passage of time, right? How long can a person boast in their beauty? For how many decades can they boast in their beauty, right? Or how long can an athlete boast that they're the greatest performer in the league? It doesn't last forever. Things we boast in are temporal at best. But I, I think what's also interesting is sometimes the things we boast in are the exact opposite of the reality. Sort of, you know, the lady doth protest too much, right? The things that we say are, are defense mechanisms oftentimes for things that we know aren't true. And in, in scripture, that happens quite a bit. And what's really interesting is oftentimes in scripture, somebody will proclaim a boast, and eventually the next thing that happens in their life is something that makes that entirely untrue. I'm going to give you guys some examples. Well, a quick example is in Romans 1.22, Paul indicts all of humanity, and he says, professing to be wise, they have become fools. You, you hear the boasting in that. They're professing that, like, we are wise, we are wise. And Paul says, in that very thing that you're saying, and in, in the wisdom that you share, it proves that you are foolish. It's kind of a, it's, in, it's the opposite of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but a, a really, really good one is... In Revelation chapter 3, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I'm going to just so I make sure that I quote it exactly perfectly. Uh, these portions, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, are sometimes referred to as Jesus' epistles. These are the letters to the seven churches, um, and Jesus has written these letters. These are all his words. These are not apostles' words. And I'm going to be reading uh, chapters... Uh, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This is to the church in Laodicea. Because you say, you know, remember, we're talking about boasting. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, and that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. The church in Laodicea, their greatest pride is in their own condition. They say, the good things that we got going for us, well, first of all, we're rich. That's good. Um, we are covered, we have no shame, we have need of nothing, but Jesus says you're actually poor, and you're actually naked, and you're actually blind, and what I would counsel to you, and when, just side note, when Jesus counsels a church to do something, they probably should heed that, but he says what, what I would recommend that you do is use what little that you have to buy from me gold refined in the fire. He says trade your commerce for what gifts I give, and get from me white garments to cover your nakedness and have eye salve so that way you can see. This is what the church boasted in. They said, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need nothing. And yet Jesus knew that the reality was actually the exact opposite. So sometimes 
The boast is the exact opposite of the reality. Um, I also want to give an example uh, that, that Jesus also told, and this is a parable, so it's not exactly a case example, but it comes from the mouth of Jesus, so it's going to be an accurate representation of reality. This is Luke chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. You don't have to turn there, but as I spout out these verses, of course, you're welcome to. Um, this is the parable of the foolish rich man. And this, this rich guy, he has... Uh, he really has this great harvest, and he's got such a massive harvest that he actually doesn't even have room in his storehouses for all that his crops have yielded. So his, his idea is, I'm gonna tear down all these, all these barns and make new ones that can house all these things. And I'm, I'm gonna read this, this is Luke 12, 19 and 20. And I will say, remember talking about boasting again, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? His boast was that I'm set for many years. I could survive on this for many years. He's saying this to himself. He's boasting at his own soul that I'm set for many years. I can survive on this. The irony is God's word is, no, actually, your soul is going to be required of you tonight. And even though you've prepared your physical life for many years, your soul is bankrupt. What you will find in these scriptural passages is that the boast comes from man and is wrong, and the indictment comes from God and is true. And what we find is that the boast is often the exact opposite of the reality. I wonder why this happens, why this is kind of this one-to-one -one ratio oftentimes in, in Scripture, that the very thing that somebody proclaims ends up being the exact opposite of what happens. Um, I'm just gonna make kind of a reference. If you don't recognize the story, I'm sorry, I don't mean to isolate you, but Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is walking on his veranda one day and he looks out at his city. He's like, is this not great Babylon, which I've made by my power? And in the next chapter, he goes mad. He's boasting in his power to build up the city and then he loses control of his own human faculties. Oftentimes in scripture, there is a one-to-one -one ratio. One boast yields an exact opposite. Why might that be? I wonder if it's because in the book of James, chapter 4, James quotes the prophet Jeremiah, and he, he translates it uh, a little bit differently than, than it may be in your version from Jeremiah, which is why I'm quoting it from James. James says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you hear that, that there's a response from God that is uh, negative to people's pride? When you approach life in a prideful manner, when you boast in what you have, when you, when you boast that you have need of nothing and that you're rich, God resists that. And sometimes the opposite ends up coming to pass. Maybe it's not so mysterious. Maybe this is just divine justice, the way that God utilizes things. It seems like the same sort of irony that happened to the church in Laodicea that happens to this character in this parable, you know, this, this foolish rich man, or what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, or what Paul says has happened to humanity as a whole, proclaiming to be wise, they've become fools. That same kind of exact irony, the boast being the opposite of the truth, 
seems to actually be happening to the Corinthians, according to what we're reading in 2 Corinthians. Let's look at verses 19 and 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you in the face. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. Do you hear the opposite there? Do you hear the irony? Now, when Paul says that they are wise, he's he's not making that judgment on them himself. He's not saying, you are wise, and that's my opinion of you. He's taking their words and he's using it against them, kind of like how he took the title of fool gladly in order to utilize it and flip that indictment on its head. The Corinthians boasted in their wisdom. The, almost the entire book of 1 Corinthians is about Paul talking about their self-proclamation that they are wise people. And so when he says, you put up with fools gladly, you welcome them into your doors, of course you should. Like you said, you guys are wise people. Does this make any sense? He's, he's being ironic there. So that kind of well, verse 20, for you put up with one if it brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. Paul, the pastor of over the church of Corinth, is the pastor that they would reject, and yet he would never do these things towards them. He would not treat them this way that these teachers who come in, they're, they're usurers. They're here to benefit, to fleece the church. And trying to re- reject Paul as a pastor, they've, they've welcomed in these people who would ensnare them. Paul's open and honest with them, and they reject that. Ironically, they embrace people who would lie to them. Paul is gentle towards them, and yet they openly embrace people who would bring them into bondage. Paul refused to take their money, and yet they welcome in people who would devour them and take their food and their resources. Paul bore persecution for the gospel, and yet they would gladly welcome in people who would strike them on their face, given the opportunity. These are, these are teachers who understand coercion and the power of the pulpit. Kind of on a sidebar, um, I had a conversation with a friend just recently, and he was talking about how he, the, the church oftentimes becomes swollen and exalted by power. And, and that's true. We just went through a, a two-week series talking about false teachers and how we can capitalize on places of prominence. And Paul said, these are the people you're welcoming in and rejecting me who would rather serve you. And you boast that you are wise, but you're doing something that's foolish, idiotic. Professing to be wise, you've become fools. You put up with the foolish gladly, and yet you claim that you're wise. The boast is the exact opposite of the reality. So maybe for those reasons, boasting is completely invalid because it's temporal at best, or sometimes it brings about God's divine justice, and then um, the thing that you boast about ends up being taken away from you. Um, I think it's also because we actually have no reason to boast. Not only because the, the things that we boast in come to pass and they're temporal at best and sometimes uh, God takes those things away, but I think just at, at neutral zero, we have nothing that we can boast about. 
There's, there's nothing that we have that's not been given to us. In, in talking to the same church, in chapter four of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, what do you have that you've not received? And then if you've received it, why do you boast in it as if you've not received it? I, I, I relate to that. And it, it's incumbent upon each of us as Christians before the Lord to, to see if that's something that really reads us, that we, that we boast in the intelligence that we have or we boast in the gifts that we practice uh, here in church or, or we boast in our, our riches. But these are not things that we've earned. These are things that have been given to us. And if it's been given to us, then why do we boast as if it wasn't given to us, as if it's something that we've wrought on our own? Even our very salvation, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 9, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Everything you have on this earth, everything that you have in heaven, everything that I have on this earth, everything that I have is in heaven, has been given to me. Not only boasting, not only does boasting tend to invite God's divine justice, but it's also ungrounded and unfounded. But what does Jesus do? Because Paul said earlier in verse 17 that this is not the Lord's way. He's going to boast, but this is not the way Jesus does his ministry. So that begs the question, what does Jesus do? Um, in the Gospels, Jesus is really cognizant of who he is. He goes into the synagogue at the beginning of his earthly ministry. He reads a passage of, out of Isaiah, and he says, Today, this day is fulfilled in your midst, saying that he is the one who's to set the captives free. He's sitting next to a woman at the well, and he says, um, I'm paraphrasing because in the context it doesn't make sense to directly quote. He says, effectively, the Messiah is the one who here is speaking to you. He knows exactly who he is, and yet when he is questioned, when he is challenged, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't prove himself in his own words. I'm going to read out of John chapter 5, and I'm going to be pulling heavily from John. So if you want to hang in John chapter 5, you're welcome to, because we'll be kind of popping back and forth in different chapters in the book of John. Um, this is chapter 5. Verses uh, 31, and then I'm going to skip down to 36. Yeah. The, uh, the Jewish officials come to Jesus, and they, they've decided that they, wanted to, they want to kill him. And John is, a, is very clear in saying that it's not just because he did things on the Sabbath and broke the Sabbath that they wanted to kill him. It's because he said that he was the son of God, and in so doing, he made himself equal with God. This is why they wanted to kill him. And Jesus responds to them, knowing that this is on their mind. He's defending himself. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 19, verses 15, it says, in a legal proceeding, no one can just defend themselves, and you can take that as, as proof. It's kind of a legal boundary against, you know, claiming for yourself. If somebody says, you know, this man robbed me, and he says, actually, I didn't, you can't be like, oh, well, he said he didn't, so he's probably telling the truth. The, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that you have to have at least two or even three witnesses to indict someone. So Jesus starts his defense towards these Jewish officials by saying, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. That's not because he's a liar, but that's because he's not legally allowed to do that. 
My witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Let's skip down to 36. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who has sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Let's do 39 as well, just for uh, clarity. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are which testify of me. Let me let's uh, talk about that a little bit. This is Jesus' way. And actually, John chapter 8, he says, if I, witness again, if I witness for myself, my witness is true. That's 8.14, I believe. Um, but he chooses not to defend himself and refers to external sources. He says... I'm not going to defend myself because that wouldn't be sound in legal proceedings. Instead, let me petition John the Baptist. John the Baptist proclaimed me, and you guys believed him. My works prove that I have come in power and that God has sent me. And God himself testifies for me. And then that verse 39 is him explaining how God himself proclaims him. It's you search the scriptures and you think in them that they have life and all these things speak of me. So he's saying God through the Bible has testified that I am his authority. So he petitions all these external impressions. John the Baptist, which is his second cousin. How would our families boast in us? Or, or let me phrase it this way. Rather than us boasting, giving our own impression of ourselves, how would our families determine our reputation? If we, gave, if we gave them voice rather than ourselves. Then Jesus says, my works that God has given me testifies of me. How would our works label us? If we gave the reins of our reputation away from our hands and just said, look at the stuff that I do, how would our behavior grade us? And then lastly, Jesus says, God himself has, who has sent me testifies of me through his word. Those other things, family members, our works, we'll just set those things aside. Let's focus on what God would say about us because remember in those passages where we read those ironic ones, it's God who reads the person's life and says the thing that you think about yourself is exactly the opposite. Laodiceans, you think that you're rich, God says you're poor. You foolish rich man, you think that you can survive for many years after your harvest? I'm telling you, no, you're going to die tonight. Nebuchadnezzar, you say that you're powerful. I'm going to show you that you're actually weak. So if we put the judgment of ourselves in the hands of God, set aside family, set aside our own behavior, if we, if we go to the word about who we are, what would it say? For that, I'm going to go to John 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. This is a very familiar passage. Um, John 3.16 is going to be included in what we read. Uh, this man is a, is a teacher of Jewish people, and he's impressed by Jesus' ability to teach. And uh, they're having a conversation. And for context, 3.11, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Verse 13, we'll skip down to there. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. 
what Jesus says, and the reason I read this as context is because Jesus is saying, as somebody who's been to heaven and now has been to earth, I am the world's foremost authority on analyzing heaven and earth, both of them. I'm telling you what I see and what I know, and so you should trust the things that I say. And this is what he tells us. Verses 16 through, how far did I want us to read? Through 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world um, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This here is Jesus's grading of all of humanity and that includes each and every one of us. That includes me. He says, as the foremost authority and all things in heaven, and all things on earth, this is what I think about Matt. This is what I think about the entire world. You're condemned, and you're evil. That's what he says. Harsh words, maybe, but it's coming from an expert. It's coming from the foremost authority in the world of things in heaven and things on earth. He says that we're condemned, and we're evil. It's not the flowery kind of boasts, I would say, in myself. I wouldn't post that on Facebook. Matthew Brandon Abed is condemned and evil. This week, I posted that I finished a 200-piece puzzle of John Stamos and put it on my wall. Those are the things that I brag in. I don't brag in, and 200 pieces is not impressive, guys. It's not impressive. The, the picture of John Stamos is impressive. It's the Uncle Jesse thing. I'll show you. Um, but this is Jesus. If Jesus had, had reigns over our grounds of promotion, this is what he would say. We're condemned and evil, and his judgment is true. He's the foremost authority. But the reason we read verses 16 and 17 is because the verdict is not the full story. In verses 16 and 17, he says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' ministry in his first advent, that's his life in the gospel, was not to come here and judge the world. That is not why he was sent here. He comes to this world and says, man, this world is full of condemned people and full of sinners, full of evil people in his words. But that's not why he came. He recognizes truth, and that is a true judgment. But he came because of verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In those latter passages, Jesus says, I didn't come here to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. I came here, and it was already in this condition. He said the world is condemned because God sent his light into the world, but people rejected it because they preferred darkness. Their deeds were evil. Jesus said, I didn't come here to put a verdict, to sentence this world, at least not right now. I came here to provide a way that these people who I see are condemned and evil and sinners and destitute and ashamed and naked, I came to provide a means for them to be saved. That's Jesus' global mission, but I, I want to go into a case study because... Things in the world, 
as a whole don't always hit home as closely as a one-on-one. John chapter 8. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? Are you, I don't, if you're familiar with that story, I don't know how versed you are in the, in the life of Jesus, but there is a woman who was caught in adultery, and in, John says, in the very act. There was no question about this woman's guilt. This was a shameful thing, this was an illegal thing, and there was no question that she was guilty of it. The verdict was already made. There was no investigation needed, no sentencing needed, they knew that she was guilty. It's kind of like when Jesus came into this world There was no investigation needed. The sentence was clear. The guilt was proven. And so these uh, scribes and Pharisees, they bring her to Jesus. They throw her at his feet. And they say, um, what do you say about what we should do to her? Because Moses says that we should stone her. That's That's the punishment for adultery. What do you say, teacher? And they're challenging him. They're trying to see if he's willing to break the law. Rome did not allow them to execute their own prisoners, which is why they bring Jesus to the Romans to have him crucified. Um, so they're, they're trying to see if they can get him to break the law, but he does something completely uh, unexpected. His, really all they were asking for was his word. They said, what do you say? And this is what he said. He, is, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Then those who heard it became convicted in their own conscience and they go out one by one from the oldest, the most honorable, even to the last, the youngest, even the most shameful. They all leave. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst of of him in this really dramatic situation. And when Jesus raises his eyes, he was writing in the ground, he raises his eyes and he saw that no one else was there except for the woman. This is a one-on-one relational case study And he says to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. There there was nobody there who could claim that they were free of sin. So nobody on earth could condemn her. Jesus was the only one in this scenario without sin. He was the only one, the foremost authority of heaven and on earth, who could come here and say, well, I do condemn you, and I testify that your works are evil. He could have said that. But what does he say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see how that parallels with what we read in John 3? If John 3 was Jesus' mission statement of what he was going to do, John 8 is a case study of how he actually did it. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. I came that some might be saved by believing in me and have everlasting life, that their debt, that their death would be paid. Jesus did not come in this first advent to condemn sinners, but to provide a substance for their salvation, which was himself on the cross. So this, this puts the ball in our court. Whose testimony will we allow to speak over our lives? Will we take the reins for ourselves? Will we let our families speak about that? Will we let our words speak for themselves? Will we let people speak for us? Or will we put our judgment in the hands of a God who does this sort of thing? He says, I'm not gonna lie. I know you're condemned. I know that you failed. I know that you're ashamed. I know that you're naked. But I've not come here to condemn you. I've come here to provide a way of escape, a way of salvation. Um, I think that this is why Paul says... uh, 
that he's not going to boast. He says, look, everything that I am, all that I can say in all truth, according to God's word, according to God himself, according to Jesus, all I am is condemned and all I am is evil. How can I boast in that? Um, it's, I want to say this. If you're not a Christian this morning, know that Jesus' purpose in coming, and according to these gospels, is not just to tell you that you're a rotten person. He's not here to say, yep, I've proven it, I've conducted an investigation, and you're evil, and you're a sinner, and I condemn you. But here's, here's the hard thing that we have to embrace. I know that sounds good, but here's the hard thing. You have to also accept his judgment. His judgment is that those things are true, that you failed, you've broken my law, you've hurt me, you've hurt people that you love, you've done wrong things. That's the hard part about this. It takes courage to be able to accept the judgment that, that God says, to, to take the reins out of our own hands, to take the, you know, the Twitter feed out of, out of our own control, to give somebody else our resume to tell the world who we are. That takes courage, and that's not easy. But the good news that Jesus provides a way of escape, that provides salvation, is predicated on that judgment. Remember, Jesus is, is like a physician. He comes for those who are sick, not for those who are healthy. We, we need to accept his judgment. We need to say, you know, the things that you did on this earth, they kind of lead me to think that, that you're true, that you came from God. And if you came from God, you must be the foremost authority of heaven and on earth. And if you are the authority of heaven on earth, then your judgment over me is that I'm evil and I'm a sinner and I'm imperfect and I'm ashamed and I'm naked and I have nothing to boast in. But if you're all those things, then what you say must be true. That's the hard part of salvation, accepting his judgment, accepting his impression, allowing Jesus to speak truth over your life. But the beautiful part of salvation, the gift of salvation, is the fact that Jesus has provided a way to be rid of those things by him bearing them for you. Jesus told the Laodiceans, you're naked and you're ashamed. Jesus went naked to the cross, despising the shame of it. The very thing that you are and don't want to be are the very things that he wanted to be and was in his atoning death. And now I, I'm addressing non-believers, but that's true for us too, Christians. For those who know and love Jesus, this is the truth. That the very things that we wouldn't boast in are true and Jesus bore them publicly. I think it's in Colossians where, where Paul says that Jesus made a public spectacle of the principalities and he was referring to the fact that Jesus died shamefully in the open as people watched him, as people ridiculed him and spat upon him and, and shamed him. The things that we would keep secret and lock away, Jesus bore publicly so that way we could be rid of them. So if you are a Christian this morning and that's something that you embrace and you accept for yourself, um, we have no reason to 
boast in the fact that we are clean, in the fact that we are morally superior, in the fact that we, are, we have control over our lives. If, if you, what do you have that you've not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast in it as if you've not received it? We need to be humble for the beautiful things that God has given us and be grateful rather than boastful. And we need to join Paul's ranks. Paul says in Galatians 6, in uh, Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the whole world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, I do boast. There's one thing I boast in, and that's the cross, because Jesus' cross is what has made me something of worth that has freed me from all of the worthlessness, that the way that all the world has affected me has been killed because of the cross, and I have been killed to the world. I no longer walk in these things because of the cross. Christians, we, we cannot boast in whatever weird class system we've created for ourselves in here in the United States. We've created a Christian class, a Christian politic, a Christian culture with Christian shirts and Christian bumper stickers and Christian bands and all those things are fine if they point you to the Lord, but those cannot be the substance of things that we boast in. We can't boast that we listen to the right music and wear the right shirts and have the right bumper stickers and drive the right speed in traffic and pay the right amount on our taxes. We cannot boast in those things. All we can boast in is the cross that has made those things possible to wretches like me. This is not just a a negative sermon of what we should not do. This is not a sermon where the main prompting is to not boast. The main prompting is is an affirmation that we should boast in the cross. We need to speak freely over these things because the world needs it, because we're proud of it, because it's the only thing in our lives that that is of value. It's made us free for righteousness and free for value. And Jesus has given us a great treasure like a gold that's been refined in the fire, pure and valuable. That's the holiness that God has given us. Robes that are white, we have so much been given freely, and so we should boast in the cross. We should boast in the cross and never again false boast and boast in ourselves, but always boast in the cross. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I'm going to welcome the worship team to come up so that way we can boast in the cross together. So that way, parents, you can grab your kids from children's ministry and they can join you and you can be in witness in front of them as you boast in the cross before them. Let's pray. Lord, I wanna thank you for the gifts that you've given us, these gifts that are better than anything that we have on earth, these gifts that are righteousness and holiness. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this great opportunity that we have to boast in the cross. And we pray that as we... um, have our Mother's Day celebrations or whatever our Sunday plans are, that we would be grateful for all the wonderful things you've given us, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for the cross. We boast in the cross and no longer in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.